morning, you guys. Uh, my, my name is Chris. I've been here and, and, and served and, and, and preached here at Resurrection a, a few times, and, and I just want to say it's, it's, it's great to be with you guys. Um, it's always a joy to, uh, to, to be here and, and to worship um, with you guys. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 19. That's where we'll be this morning. Luke chapter 19. Uh, I know that around around here at Resurrection, much like my my home church and, and RSM, one of the things that 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 we care about, that I know you care about deeply as well, is having this posture of hospitality, right? Having this posture of hospitality, and that's what we're talking about this morning. A posture of hospitality, be what it means to be intentionally others oriented. You see, if we're really others oriented, because we follow Jesus, who happens to be the most others-oriented human to like walk through this planet, then hospitality towards outsiders should define our lives as Christians. It should define our lives. Now, uh, when, when, when we say the word hospitality, like, like what do you guys think of? Right? Like when some, some of us hear the word hospitality, we think of like Rachel Ray, right? Martha Stewart, cleaning, cooking, setting the table, coordinating colors, but checking Pinterest first, you know, to make sure that you're doing everything right. Uh, but that's not in the truest sense of the word hospitality. Like that's, that's, that's entertaining. You see, entertaining is about impressing people while hospitality is about, is about loving people and, and serving them, inviting them into your lives. Sometimes hospitality and entertainment actually go together, but oftentimes they don't. Like true hospitality can be just as meaningful with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches than uh, they can be with a nice cut of steak. And that's because true hospitality is about being truly present, about being truly available, especially to those who are different from you. Those who are other than you, those that are on the outside, that's what true hospitality is. It's about inviting people on the outside into the mess of our lives and being okay with them even making a bigger mess if they have to and saying, you know, we'll just, we'll clean it up later. But the point isn't to impress others, but to be together, to love and to serve. And so we're going to unpack this passage here in, in Luke 19, where we see a, a clear picture of true hospitality in the heart of Jesus. Uh, read the first ten, 10 verses of Luke 19 with me. It says, He, this is speaking of Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give now to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the loss. This is the word of God. 
So we see hospitality here in this passage in the heart of Jesus. We see it in the heart of Jesus. Now Jesus is actually going to someone else's house, right? You might have noticed that. He's the one going to someone else's house, but, but he, Jesus Christ, is the one who had the posture of hospitality that we're going to unpack this morning. Because Zacchaeus was somebody who was a stranger. Zacchaeus was somebody who was an outsider to like the nth degree. And yet Jesus still invited him into his life. And so we're going to unpack this topic of hospitality by looking at three questions this morning. Uh, first, who is hospitality for? Second, when and where is hospitality done? And thirdly, lastly, why do we need it? So who is hospitality for? When and where is hospitality done? And lastly, why do we need it? So that first one, who is hospitality for? Read verse one again with me. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So other than Jesus, the other central character in this passage is a man named Zacchaeus, who we see from this, this, this description of him. He's kind of this, this hobbit-sized little man, right, that collects... He collects taxes, right? He's the one being invited to share life with Jesus. He's the one that Jesus is pursuing, the one that Jesus dines with and extends hospitality to. And so that kind of begs the question for us, like, who is Zacchaeus? What does it mean to be a chief tax collector? We're told that he's a chief tax collector. And if you have any background in the Bible, then you know that tax collectors are, are, are some of the least likable guys, Right? The guys that would go around collecting taxes are some of the least likable guys back then. Um, they were totally hated in that day. Uh, and they're, I mean, they're not exactly loved in ours, right? But in Jesus' day, especially, a tax collector was actually a Jew who basically would backstab all the other Jews by working for the Roman government who ruled over them. Ruled, working for the Roman government who was oppressing them. And so on behalf of Rome... <coughs> These guys would go around town and collect tax after tax from anyone who had a pulse. And the way that tax collectors made a profit for themselves is they would overtax people on purpose, make a greater margin for themselves. And so, like I said, they're not exactly the most likable guys. And so imagine it like this. Earlier this year, I was in the Denver, Boulder, Colorado area for this, uh, this, this trip. And I stayed an extra few days to, to preach at a buddy's church out there. Uh, it was actually another PCA church in, in Lafayette, Colorado. And I noticed as we were driving out, out there in, in, the, in the Boulder, Colorado area, um, I started noticing that we kept getting stuck behind these huge parking police vehicles behind these huge police vehicles where every time we drive this this big like police suv would just stop in the middle of the road and we ended up having to wait for a minute while the cop like jumped out and would write these 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 parking tickets and they were writing tickets like left and right like these 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 glorified meter maids right just uh stopping us uh, in the road again and again and again throughout the, re- the week. And, I, and I, it, it just stuck out to me. I'm like, I had this thought, like Denver parking police are like next level intense, right? They're really intense. You don't see that kind of thing happen here. See, in the OC suburbs, we don't really deal with intense parking limits like that, right? 
I mean, even when we do have them, like in beach cities, like our, the parking police, they just, they do like ride bikes or small little golf buggies, kind of like that rabbit in Zootopia, right? But these, like we see those all over Laguna Beach, but out there in Denver and Boulder, you've got these like huge, massive four-wheel drive, snow plowing SUVs that when they stop, they just stop traffic. You got to wait behind that, right? And now imagine... Imagine now, if you will, that we had those SUV, like huge, like H2 Hummer meter maids over here, right? And imagine that we had a really oppressive government, okay? I'm not trying to make any political statements, right? So it doesn't matter if you're the left or the right. Just imagine that some of the liberties that you enjoy right now have been taken from you, right? Imagine that you had a really oppressive government, and one of the ways that that government would further oppress you and control you is through these outrageous parking funds. And so they would recruit a few locals from around South Orange County, from Ladera Ranch, Rancho Mission Viejo, and, and RSM, and they'd give them a nice fancy house on the corner, uh, a gated community in a cul-de-sac, right? With, and they give them keys to this fancy, lifted, like H2 Hummer SUV, along with the freedom to drive around and leave outrageous parking tickets on any vehicle that they choose, whether your parking meter is out or not, right? They could just give to whoever they want in order to, to make money for the government and make more money for themselves. And imagine that these people would always overcharge you because the more that they charge you, the more they make for themselves. And so you might get charged more based on how you look or how you dress or the kind of car you drive or whether they liked you or not. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that a person like that around here would not be very liked, right? Would be very disliked and it would probably be avoided at all costs, right? You see that Hummer coming down the road, you're like, I do not want to be on the road at the same time as, as that guy. That's who Zacchaeus was. He was that kind of guy. He was a Jew hired by the Romans, corruptly ripping off his own people, committing extortion against and committing extortion against them in order to fund an already oppressive government and make himself rich in the process. He's that kind of guy. He's got tons of money, tons of perks, tons of privilege, but no friends. No friends. His name Zacchaeus actually literally meant righteous man, which everyone would have thought was painfully ironic. Kind of like how in high school, right, they always call the biggest, stockiest, largest dude on the football team, he always gets the nickname Tiny, right? Because it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be ironic. That's like Zacchaeus. His name meant righteous, but he was the most unrighteous guy, according to everyone else. His parents probably gave him that name, hoping he'd grow up to be this godly, righteous guy one day and make them proud but if they were alive, they were probably ashamed of the backstabber that he'd become. A chief tax collector? Like, how could you do that to your own people? And so in Jesus' day, you avoid a guy like that. That's what we would do in our day. That's what they did in their day. And yet, here's what Jesus does to Zacchaeus. He sees Zacchaeus from a distance. And Jesus initiates a relationship with him. Jesus invites him in. Verse 4 says, 
So he, Zacchaeus, ran on ahead when he heard that Jesus was coming. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus was about to pass on the road. And then verse 5, it says, And when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, hurry and come down. You see, the word hospitality is actually not in this passage. But it's demonstrated by Jesus every step of the way. All throughout the passage. Remember, hospitality is all about (coughs) demonstrating the love of God to strangers. And if there's a stranger in this passage, it's Zacchaeus. He was a stranger to society. A guy on the margins who was hated. Not only a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. But he's also a stranger to Jesus. He didn't personally know Jesus. And yet Christ, Jesus responds by calling out to him. Lovingly. Loving on him. Calling out to him. And Jesus loves him into the church. Into his family. You know what sets Christianity apart from other world religions? You see, the morality of other world religions say you've got to clean yourself up, you've got to get your act together before you join us. Even the postmoderns will say, you know, unless you're as tolerant as we are, then we will not tolerate you. But Jesus loves people before they do good. He loves people before they're in. He initiates before they believe. Author Anne Lamott, I I love this this, this quote from her. She says, You can be sure that you've created God in your own image when God happens to hate all the same people that you do. (laughs) You see, that's the scandal of Jesus. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. He looks at Zacchaeus and sees potential for beauty, potential for greatness, potential for the kingdom. What he sees in Zacchaeus is a life that can be transformed and altered by the power of divine grace. The calling of Zacchaeus is all about sovereign grace. That's who hospitality is for. Hospitality is for broken sinners in need of grace. In other words, hospitality is for everyone. It's for everyone, especially the outsider, the one on the margins. So that leads us to our second question. Now, when and where is hospitality needed and done? When is hospitality done? Look at verse 5. The rest of verse 5 says that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus calls Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, to dine with him. This guy is never on anybody's guest list, yet Jesus says to him, put me on yours. You see, that's the when and where of hospitality. It's anytime, anywhere, any place. Jesus was on his way from one place to the next, yet he stopped by this tree and looked up and called Zacchaeus down. He stops to pursue this man. And here... We see a great picture of what it means that Jesus came down to earth. And that's what we just celebrated at Christmas time, right? There's a great picture of what it means that Jesus came down to earth. And Jesus, God brought his kingdom not to the elite, but to the low, to the sinners. Not to those who thought they had all the answers. 
not to the ultimate in crowd. Jesus came for the out crowd. Some of the people with Jesus, they were grumbling. They, they, like, they didn't like this. They're following Jesus around thinking, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the guy that the scriptures have been promising about that we've been waiting for? I mean, he's filling up synagogues all over Galilee. People are flocking to hear him speak. But here, a group of them, they're just perplexed because, you know, they expected that when the Messiah would come, that he would come with great power, right? The kind of power that would restore God's order, that would end oppression and destroy rebel sinners like Zacchaeus. That's what some of these guys were expecting. And that's why we see them grumbling in verse 7 when it says, When they saw this, when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, He, Jesus, has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They're like, mind is blown. They're like, why would he do that? But Jesus doesn't satisfy their judginess. He came not only in power, but in love. You see, in fact, his power is defined by love, not by force. Now, we can't miss the importance of Jesus sharing a meal with this man, sharing a meal with the chief tax collector. You see, a meal in that culture defined your social boundaries. A meal defined social boundaries. It told you who is approved and who is not. Because, so sharing a meal was a very intimate thing because to share a meal was to share a bowl. Like you'd, you'd stick your hands in the same bowl that was being passed around you stick your same hands in the same bowl of food together and then you'd, you'd take your food, you'd eat it, and then you'd, you'd pass it around. So everyone double-dipped and nobody cared, right? It was a really intimate thing, sharing a meal. Because sharing a meal said, I, I accept you. I'm letting you in. Dinner etiquette to Jesus means inviting sinners to the table. It means accepting the unacceptable. You see, that's the heart of hospitality. He shows up. Jesus shows up and he says, I, the Messiah, I eat with sinners. And that's what ticked off the grumblers so much. They had their righteous list of we got to do this and we got to not do that. And so they felt like they earned their ticket to the table. But Jesus destroys their way of thinking. He turns it on its head by eating with sinners who have nothing, who've done nothing to be accepted by God. You see, that's the heart of salvation. That's the heart of hospitality. It's inviting those who don't expect an imitation. You see, these grumblers, they believe that to be truly righteous, you needed to avoid, you needed to just not sin. But you needed to avoid all contact with sin. You needed to avoid the sick, avoid the marginalized, avoid the morally loose. But Jesus' attitude towards sin was to invite, to step in, and to ask, how can this person be made new? How can this be restored? How can I get into that and transform it? You see, the grumblers looked down on sin, but Jesus looked for it. He looked for it. He seeks the tax collectors. He breaks into their lives and he shares a meal. You see, Jesus loves people not because they are perfect and not even because they will be perfect. But he extended hospitality on the sheer fact that they are made in the image of God. 
It's not dependent on their performance or even in their future performance. And we know that because his inner circle, one of the guys in his inner circle of disciples would eventually betray him. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the countercultural beauty of the gospel of grace. The countercultural beauty of the hospitality of Jesus. It's that we bring nothing to the moment. We bring nothing to the meal. We bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to our salvation except our need. You see, the very moment you think, like, look, I get why God chose me, right? Instead of someone like that. I get why God chose me instead of that other person. The moment you start thinking that way, like you've got it all wrong. Sometimes we get more excited about how rightly we think or how well we perform than we do about how amazing God's grace is. There's no point in the Christian journey that you graduate from the gospel. There's no point in the Christian walk that you graduate from the good news of God's grace towards sinners. No point that you move beyond your need for that gospel, beyond your need for grace. The scriptures say that we will never tire of grace, we'll never get over it. It it actually says in the scriptures that we'll sing of it for all eternity. It says that in Revelation. I love the lines from that that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, when it says, when we've been there in eternity, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You see, we'll sing of Him forever and ever and ever and ever, and we'll never get bored of the song. We'll never get bored of singing heaven's best hits, right? Why? Because he's worthy. His grace is amazing. That's why we call it amazing grace. The Bible calls King Jesus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He makes angels sing on high and he makes demons tremble below. His voice is the voice that not only commands the waves and the storms, but it's the voice that ushered the universe to existence. The voice that spun the stars into their place. And that voice, the power of that voice, that sovereign voice, that godly voice, that voice is the voice that called out to Zacchaeus, hurry, hurry and come down. Join me. It's the voice that invites us, come and follow me. The voice of power is the voice of love. The voice of invitation to all the swindlers and all the sinners like Zacchaeus, like me, and like you. Jesus invites, hurry. Come down. Follow me. And when Jesus told Zacchaeus, come down and let's eat together, he did. Verse 6, it says, so he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him, received Jesus joyfully. You see, that, my friends, is the beauty of the Christian testimony. He responded to the invitation of Jesus. 
In verse 8, it says that, that he, he gave all his riches to the poor. If he, if he did anyone wrong, he paid them back fourfold. His life was transformed. You see, if you're a Christian this morning, and that's your story too. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it's only because of one thing. It's because of the pursuit of Jesus. The pursuing grace of Jesus Christ. You're not here because you're right all the time or because you're amazing most of the time. It's not that you have it all together, but that you've been called and beckoned and drawn, drawn and rescued by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus in this chapter is a model for our hospitality. You see, Zacchaeus climbed up the tree like an undignified man. And what does Jesus do? He calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down here. And Jesus welcomes him and eats with him. You see, that's all that hospitality is. It's noticing people, especially those that go unnoticed, and inviting them in. A social activist, John Perkins, he says, you know, you don't give dignity to people. You affirm the dignity that's already in them. Because they're made in the image of God. You see, culture would tell us to only hang with people who will get us to the next level, get us to the next step. Only hang with the kind of people who can give you something back if you give something to them. Like in business, there's this old adage, if you want to fly with the eagles, you don't hang with the turkeys. You should only spend time with people who can give you something back in return, who can get you to the next level. And Jesus blows that whole way of thinking out of the water. He turns it on its head. He flushes it down the toilet. When you see people as a means to an end, then they become resources to you rather than human beings made in the image of God. You see, Jesus extends love to others anytime and anywhere. That's the, that's the when and where of hospitality. And that leads us to our last point, the question of the why of hospitality. Why hospitality? Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. You see, that's the big why of hospitality. It's because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The lost that need to be found. The blind that need to see. Elsewhere, Jesus says it like this. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, when was the last time you told somebody, like, man, I'm, I need to see the doctor this week because I'm feeling amazing, right? Like, nobody says that. And that's the point. Like, you don't say that if you're healthy. You say that if you're sick. Jesus says he's a great Physician, He came for those who are sick with sin. But the grumblers were too proud to see that. They wanted a king who came for the put together like that. They failed to see that if Jesus did not eat with sinners, that he'd be eating alone. So a question that we can ask ourselves this morning to practically apply this is, who are the broken in your life that you are avoiding? Who are the outsiders 
that you are reluctant to invite in. Or I can ask it this way, who are the people that make you grumble? What kind of person would make you feel uncomfortable if they came here and this morning and sat next to you? Who are the people, maybe in this church family, who are different than you that you maybe need to get to know and invite into your life? Who is the person on the margins, on the outside, that needs to get invited in? The people at work or at school, the places that God has placed around you. Who are the neighbors you live by that you never talk to? Who are the people who are so curious about Jesus that they're climbing up these proverbial trees, searching for your answers? And maybe your voice is the voice that Jesus wants to use to say, come down. Let's eat together. Let's be together. Come over tonight. You see, as the community of Jesus, we respond knowing that we are not only saved by the message of grace, but we're sent into the world with the message of grace. Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You see, the great message about the, of the grace of God isn't that, hey, Jesus is cool with everyone, no matter what you do. But that's not what grace is. It's not that Jesus is cool with everyone. It's that Jesus is needed by everyone. He draws near to those that are sick and sin so that he can provide both a diagnosis and a cure. But what he does with the broken is he draws near to them. And see, if that's true of Jesus, and that should be true of us, his followers. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Is that you follow him. You do what he does. You go where he went. By eating with tax collectors and sinners, he was honoring their dignity and inviting them in grace. It's not that they will be transformed, but it's that they can be. That was enough for him to eat with them. See, Christians are called to be hospitable because we serve a hospitable God. The Lord we follow, He welcomes sinners. And since we follow Him, then we should do the same. Because Jesus called out to those on the margin, we do the same. Because He came down for us, we go out to them. Because He valued us when we were broken, we have the same posture towards others posture of hospitality. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for just the grace of Jesus that is so clearly on display in this short passage in Luke 19. God, as we've heard its words and have been instructed by it and see your grace and hospitality modeled uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Man, as we observe him, we just—I just have a sense that as we as we as we meditate and read and walk through this passage, that we're wooed by his love and grace. <laughs> Holy Spirit, would you now take that posture, that passion that you stirred in our hearts, and equip us now to extend that to others for your glory and for your fame. Just stand and pray. Amen.